we're going to go back in Mark tonight. Uh, turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and we'll read verses 9 through 13. And Mark writes there, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. Now, you notice Mark's account, Mark's gospel, is different than the other gospels. He doesn't introduce Jesus like the other gospels do. I mean, he doesn't have any birth narrative. He doesn't give any genealogy. There's no Old Testament prophecies prophesying of Jesus' birth. There's no mention of his youth doesn't talk about when he's a young man like Luke does. He doesn't talk about angels meeting shepherds in the field and this bright light appearing to announce Jesus' birth. He doesn't have that. He doesn't mention the wise men, and we don't know that there was three, but there was wise men from the east. He doesn't talk about Herod trying to kill the king that he thought would threaten him and butchered all those children of Israel. He doesn't have any of that. Instead, where does he begin the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does that with his first public appearance, his baptism. And Luke 3.23 tells us that when that happened, Luke says there in 3.23 that Jesus was about 30 years old. So Mark has skipped 30 years of Jesus' life. 30 years of his life. So as I said before, the, the Bible is true history. Historically, it is 100% accurate, but the purpose is not to set forth what we would consider a modern biography where everything is covered, all the details are covered. In fact, a lot of the Old Testament kings of Israel did great things, secular things, and you don't read a thing about it because the Bible and God is interested in giving us theological truths that will lead to our salvation. That is the purpose of the book. You know, John said that if everything Jesus did was written, he supposed that the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Now, that's a lot of books. You know, I'd like to read just maybe five of them. <laughs> I don't care about a world full of them, but he said that what he did write, what he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, he says those things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So we have everything we need in this book to guide ourselves through this life, know what we know about God, what we need to know about how to obtain eternal life is right here. He's not left anything out. Everything's written there. It is complete. And so John is proclaiming at the beginning here, John the Baptist, the coming of the one he says that is mightier than I. And how mighty is he? He says he's so mighty that John was called by Jesus the greatest prophet that ever lived. And yet John said, I'm not even worthy to unlatch the latchet on his shoe or his sandal. And I'm saying at that time, that was like the lowest occupation you could have. Jewish slaves didn't even have to do that. He said, I'm not even worthy to do that. And that is who's coming on the scene, the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here he comes. 
Verse 9, he just appears in verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And where did he come from? Not where you would expect him to come from. Because Jerusalem at that time was the religious center of activity. And that's where you would think God would send the Messiah from, right? But it's not. He came from Nazareth of Galilee. And listen, that, at that time, that was a despised area. It was on the fringe of Israel. It was dominated by the Gentiles. You know, even one of his own disciples in John 1, Nathaniel, when he heard that, that the Messiah, they said to the Messiah that Moses had prophesied, had written about, has come. And they tell him, and he's come from Nazareth. What was his answer? He says, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, that's what they thought of Nazareth. They knew it was the waste of a town. I would say it was the wadi, but I won't say that because we've got too many people that live there. But it was the wadi of its day, though. No. I mean, that's the old joke we used to have, right? And, you know, they even apparently had a different accent up there in Galilee, right? Because when Peter denied knowing the Lord, the people are like, oh, no, you've got one of those northern accents, which is what I hear down here. Your accent betrays where you're from. You know, they're like, we can smell a northerner by his accent, right? God, in his wisdom, had prophesied hundreds of years before that through Isaiah that a great light, because they considered that a dark area up there, but he said a great light would be seen by them that walked in darkness, and it also says in Isaiah that those that dwelt in the shadow of death would have light shine. And that was called Galilee of the Gentiles. And goes on to prophesy about the coming Messiah. Whether you know this or not, the majority of Jesus' ministry took place up around the Sea of Galilee. It didn't take place down in Jerusalem. He was a northerner and most of his ministry took place up north. So here in the midst of the crowds coming to be baptized, here appears the Son of God to be baptized with a baptism of repentance. Except, as we talked about a few weeks back, there's a problem with that. And what is it? Jesus had nothing to repent of. As we know, we all know, he never sinned. And when he comes to John, John protests to him, and he says, I have need to be baptized of you. And you're coming to me to be baptized? And Jesus says, allow it to be so, so that we can fulfill all righteousness. And what did he mean by that? So Jesus had to identify with us as sinners. That's what he's doing. That's one thing that's happening there at that baptism. He's identifying with our need. When he became a man, he became one of us in that sense. Not a sinful. He didn't take on sinful flesh, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And 2 Corinthians 5 says, He, God, has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was counted by God to be me and you on that cross. That's how he treated him. As if he had sinned. He was made to be sinned, even though he never knew sin, ever. Counted and treated as a wicked sinner. And that's what this baptism that he's partaking of here, that is what it points to. And one man said this. I thought this was an interesting way of looking at it said the waters of the Jordan had symbolically been tainted by the sins of the Jewish people, and Jesus allowed himself to be immersed in that water to allow the sins of the people to overwhelm his person, which pointed to the cross. And he told his disciples, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. 
And so this water baptism of Jesus is pointed to that baptism, that death that he would suffer on the cross on our behalf when he identified with us. But also, another thing I believe when it says we must fulfill all righteousness, his baptism also showed his total obedience to the Father. And we find that in Philippians 2. It says there that he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's hard for us, I think, to understand what utter humiliation that was for the God of glory to come to this earth, take on flesh, and then submit to being submerged in the murky, dirty waters of the Jordan River. You've seen it. It is nasty. It is nothing you'd want to go swimming in or take your kids to. And he submitted to that. I mean, it had to be bad even back then because naming the Syrian... When the prophet told him, hey, you go dip in the Jordan River 17, he's like, I'm not going there. That's nasty. We got nice rivers up here. Uh-uh. But guess what? He's like, the prophets, you don't humble yourself and do that? Forget your healing. But the Lord Jesus Christ did that, went to that nasty, dirty river to identify himself with the likes of me and you. Nasty sinners that hated him. We're looking at this, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That to me, what this should do, this study, is magnify him in our eyes. It's all about him, pointing to him. And that shows his true love and the humility that is displayed in God. No heathen would make a God up like that. Only the God of the Bible. But he not only identified with us at his baptism, but what else is taking place? You know what else is taking place that we read about there? It's his coronation as the new king. He's being coronated. That's verses 10 to 11. And straightway, when he comes up out of the water, verse 10, and he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So there's three things that take place when Jesus comes up out of the water that point to his divine authority as the anointed king. And the first thing we read about there, it says the heavens are opened. And the second thing is the spirit comes down and descends upon him in the form of a dove. And then that heavenly voice speaks. And that's the coronation of God's anointed king. And you think about it. You think about it. The scene of the herald, the king's coronation and his testing, it's not where you would expect it to be at a royal palace. That's what you would expect with all the pomp, the splendor, heads of states, banqueting, and parades. That's what happens when we anoint our king, getting ready to happen this January, be elected in November. That's what happens, and that's typically what happens. But the greatest king that ever lived, the king of kings and lord of lords, has all of that take place where? In the wilderness, a barren, wasteful wilderness. No pomp, no splendor. Only God would do that. And what do we see in these verses here? We see the Trinity in action. They're all three here. Somebody wants to deny the Trinity, take them here. Take them to Matthew 3. Because they're all three present at the same time. And we see the Spirit as a person, the Son as a person, and the Father as a person. All equal in substance, power, and divinity. All equal. 
different roles, but the same substance, power, and divinity. And so we have the sun and the water, and we have the spirit descending, it says, in the form of a dove. He can't be limited into a dove, obviously, right? <laughs> Eternal spirit that can't be seen, unlimited, unlimited in power. But he takes that form, the form of a dove, and the Father speaks from heaven. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And heaven, by this act, has declared forever the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, co-equal with the Father. That's what we get there. And he asked his disciples later, well, who do men say that I am? The answer was, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They give all these different answers, and it's the same way today. If you ask people, well, who do you think Jesus is? Who is Jesus? I don't mean this disrespectfully, but if you ask my dad that, my dad would say he likes his teachings. He taught us a lot on love. He thinks he's a good man and a good philosopher, but he doesn't believe he's God doesn't believe that. And Islam, well, they will say this. They'll say he's a prophet. And if you didn't know it, they will even say he was sinless and say Muhammad wasn't sinless. Now, how do you put Muhammad above him in that case? But that's, that's where they're at. And many people today, they will not admit that Jesus is God. They'll even want to deny he historically existed. But that's not what God said here. He's given us forever heaven's decree. And look in verse 10, what we have happening there. It says, and straightway when he came out of the water, the first thing it says is the heavens opened. And literally, the Greek, open just sounds nice, like you just open a door for somebody. That's not what the Greek says. The literal Greek says it, the heavens were ripped apart. It's the same word that was used for the veil in the temple being ripped in two from top to bottom. It's the same word. It wasn't just parted. The heavens literally were ripped apart. So what's happening? It's describing a supernatural event that is highly dramatic. Can you imagine? You're there at the River Jordan and you look up and, you know, just go outside tomorrow and look at the sky. You see the blue sky with clouds and you're looking up at that and all of a sudden, literally, it just rips apart comes apart and here comes a dove out of that descending upon this person being baptized I'd be like wow dramatic event no small thing torn sky and a dove descends upon the Lord Jesus Christ and I'll tell you what if I'd have been there that would have had a big impact on me I don't know about you that would have had a big impact and I'm sure it did on everybody present at Jesus's baptism and not only that but all who heard about it and all who would have heard this gospel being read that didn't happen when Caesar was anointed king nothing like that and here's the reason why it would have been a big deal to the Jews you know why because they knew their Bible a lot of them did and this fulfilled a prophecy in Isaiah 64 Oh, that thou wouldest, this is what the prophet said to God. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, tear them apart, that you would come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. That's something they were looking for to happen. Oh, that the heavens would rip apart, God, and you would come down and visit us. We need your visitation. That was an expectation and a prayer that the people of Israel had fulfilled right there out in that wilderness at Jesus' baptism is what happened. And a lot of you, I know you listen to the music of Robin Marks. And what was the name of that song he had? 
Rend the heavens, I believe is the name of it, and it goes like this. Rend the heavens and come down. In your majesty, come down. In your mercy, Lord, come down upon us. Clothe yourselves in robes of grace. You are welcome in this place where the saints are gathered for your worship, Lord. And man, do we need that here. Can we not make that a prayer of our hearts? But here's the thing. When you don't understand the Old Testament, you can just read things like this. It has no impact on you if you don't understand the word. And you're not going to get the word. So I preach an hour. Whoever else preaches an hour or so here twice a week. You're not going to get what you need to have this Bible have an impact on you. And I'm encouraging you. Know, a lot of people were getting those Bible plans to read. Your, you need to stay with that. You need to know your Bible. I mean, man, think how critical that is. For verses you read in the New Testament, you have to know your Old Testament. You, we have to be students of the Bible, of all things. We should be that for things to have an impact. But those Jews, they would have known. They would have said, oh, that immediately would have spoken to them to see the heavens rend and the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. That was the anointing of the king happening right there. The anointing of the king. And in the Old Testament, here again, when you see that happen, that the Spirit is coming down upon him, the Spirit came upon him, that would immediately speak to you of that's what happened in the Old Testament. He didn't indwell every child of God in the Old Testament. He only came on certain people for special occasions, to do special ministries for a special purpose. In Judges 3, when Israel was in bondage to the Mesopotamians and they cried out to the Lord, it says this, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And look what it says. Here's how God delivered him. We read the same thing about Gideon. I just picked another judge. But it says this, they're in bondage. They cry out to the Lord for help. He raised up a deliverer, and it says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. It's the same idea, coming down, enveloping this king, this judge, this prophet, this person that's going to work on the ark, this special anointing, the Spirit of God. And that's what's happening to the Lord Jesus Christ. The heavens rend, and the Spirit comes down upon him, and it says, without measure. Now, the Holy Spirit's without measure only on him. There was no limit to the Spirit's power on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God appointed David, another example, as king, that's what happened. His Spirit came upon him to empower him for service, the king. 1 Samuel 16, 13 says this, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brethren. And listen, it says the same thing. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Wow. Same thing happened to Saul, but you know what happened? Because of his disobedience, you know what we read? The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Caused him major problems, didn't it? Major problems. And so they knew that the Messiah, the son of David would have the Spirit come on him and anoint him, that he would be anointed just like the forefather David. And so they're anticipating this. They're looking for this Spirit-filled Messiah to come, be anointed by God. And all of that was fulfilled at Jesus' baptism. That's what happened. And here's something for us to consider, though. Something for us to consider. When did the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus? You say, what well, is baptism? Well, yeah, but there's a little more than that. What was he doing? You know what he was doing? 
got up out of that water. You think he's just sitting there waiting? You know what he was doing? Luke 3, 21 tells us this. Now, when all the people were baptized and it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heavens was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. So when the Holy Spirit came on the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, he was praying. Now listen, the Lord Jesus was fully God. He was full deity. He never ceased to be that, ever. But when he took on flesh, you know what? He subjected himself to limitations because he was also fully man. And he operated entirely dependent on the Holy Spirit. To be fully man, he had to. He was fully dependent on the Holy Spirit, just like you and I are. And he said this, the Father that dwells in me, he does the work. Now, that's something, isn't it? You think, well, he was God, he could do whatever he wanted to. No, he couldn't. Because he had to be tempted at all points like we are. He was totally dependent on the Holy Spirit and his Father in him to do everything he did. And that's why he says, the works that I do, you can do also. Same Holy Spirit was in him. So here's the thing. He knew the ministry that lied ahead of him, didn't he, at that point? And he knew he would need to fulfill it. And he knew that he was going to be, as one man said, armed with the remarkable power of God to do what God asked him to do. And he's praying. The Son of God, God Himself, praying for the Holy Spirit to come down on Him. God answered that prayer. Just like He commands us, doesn't He? We're commanded by Paul to be filled with the Spirit. And so the Lord, being a man, fully man, He needed to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Ephesians 6, how many times did we read that verse a while back? He needed the same thing we do. So are we greater than Him? That we think we can get by without praying for God's anointing and presence in our daily lives to fulfill whatever the ministry he has for us, there is no way. We've got to make prayer and praying to God to be filled with the Spirit a regular thing that we do. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down. That needs to be our prayer individually and as a church. Well, let me ask you, so we're saying that the Holy Spirit, when he came down, he came down in the form of a devil. Why did he come down like that? Why didn't he come down like fire? Now, that would have been even more dramatic, wouldn't it? Heaven split open, fire descends down. Wow, nobody's going to forget. But yet he comes in like a dove. Why a dove? Well, I don't think it has anything to do with Noah's Ark. I think it has a lot to do with what was Jesus' ministry at that time. What was his ministry? Was it a ministry of judgment? His ministry at that time was a ministry. It will be a ministry of judgment one day. But at that time, it was a ministry of reconciliation. John 3, everybody knows John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But John 3, 17 says this. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And later when his disciples, they're like, hey, when the Samaritans are like, you know, we're not letting you through here. We're going to make you take the long route. And the disciples are like, come on, Lord, let's just call fire down on them like Elijah did. And what was his answer to them? He says, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, 
but to save them. And listen to this, Isaiah 42 says this. This is Jesus' ministry when he was on earth. It describes him. It says, he shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. And so I believe the Holy Spirit came like, that's the spirit that Jesus operated in, not to destroy men's lives, but to bring reconciliation, to help somebody that's hurt and get back on their feet. To bring the sheep in. And that should be our ministry, shouldn't it? If we have his spirit in us. So it shouldn't be in our hearts to call down fire from heaven. Isn't that the temptation? And sometimes we give in to it. That's not right. Not in any way, right? So not if the Holy Spirit's in us, it shouldn't be the sign. And the final sign of Jesus' divine appointment as the anointed Messiah is what? It's that voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And once again, I'm saying there's a lot packed in that single sentence that would have spoke loudly to the Jews of that day. Because there's many places in the Old Testament that would have immediately come to their minds. Those that knew their Bibles, and a lot of them did. And so Isaiah 42.1 says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect in whom my soul delights. That's God speaking. They would have heard that echoing when the Father speaks from heaven. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And the Jews knew that that spoke of the Messiah. So when they hear this voice from heaven and everything that's being said there, hey, that's speaking to them. This is God pointing to this is the promised Messiah. Everything's pointing that way for those that were looking and those that do their scripture. And of course, Psalm 2, 7 says this, the Lord has sent unto me, thou art my son. The very words the father spoke from heaven. Psalm 2, 7, thou art my son. This day have I begotten me. And you know what else they would have heard? Echoes out of Genesis 22, where three times, three times the Lord said to Abraham, take now thy son, thine only son. So Abraham had many sons, didn't he? But he only had one son, Isaac, that was beloved. And so Abraham, they knew that he had a deep love for his son, Isaac. And that would have been reflected in what the father is saying to Jesus. You are my beloved son. Just like Isaac was beloved to Abraham. Both of them had to sacrifice their sons whom they deeply loved and delighted in. Just a simple statement here in verse 11. Thou art my beloved son to whom I am well pleased. We see what? The eternal love of the father for his son. And we also see the loving obedience of the son. The son in whom he is well pleased. And the fact that he is God's servant. Because it pointed back to that scripture in Isaiah 42. And yet, we have Psalm 2-7. He's a servant and yet a king. There's an awful lot packed in one sentence right there. If you know your Bible. Right? Only if you know your Bible. Because otherwise, you're just going to read that and be like, Oh yeah, Jesus got baptized, a voice from heaven. And you're just going to move on. Ah, oh, but those that knew their Bible, oh, that was going to speak loudly to them going to say a whole lot to them, going to have their eyes open to who this Lord Jesus is that he's talking about here. Because Jesus' baptism, what we need to understand is it was the foundation for his life and ministry, even though it is briefly told here. I mean, it's given 
brief, not nearly what Matthew and Mark did, right? Because Jesus is dramatically, when you take time to think about the words that are saying, empowered by the Spirit, the heavens rip apart, the Spirit descends on him, declared to be the king, Psalm 2-7. And not just any king, but God himself. That's what's being said there. This isn't any king, this is God himself. And Jesus, like I said, was given the Spirit without measure. The authority of God himself is how he walked this earth. Think it's not important? Well, a little bit later we'll see in Mark, Mark 11, the chief priests, scribes, and elders. You know what they do? They come to Jesus and they question his authority. By what authority do you do these things? They're questioning that. And who gave you this authority to do these things? And you know how Jesus answered them? I'll tell you how he answered them. He pointed back to his baptism, to all these events we're talking about now. The baptism of John, he tells him, was it from heaven or was it of men? And he says, you answer me that. He says, you give me an answer to that and I'll tell you about what authority it happened. Because the authority came from God himself out of heaven. All those events that took place. So after that, we move on from verses 9 through 11. After the coronation, we have what? We have the king in conflict. And so Jesus, you know what's funny? It's like he's not even allowed to enjoy or bask in the anointing that he's received or the fact that the Father in heaven has spoken to him from heaven because he's got an appointment. And the Holy Spirit's going to make sure he's not late because look what it says there in verse 12. And immediately the word is. He's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. It gives you this sense of urgency. Okay, you've been coronated king and all that, and now immediately it says he's driven out into the wilderness, and he wasn't led. The Greek word means he was impelled, expelled, or driven out in there by the Holy Spirit. It's a force. It's, he wasn't just nudged out there. It says he was driven out. And what's funny is, look at how short two verses to talk about the whole wilderness testing. I mean, it's not two verses in Matthew and Luke. It's many more verses than that. But here's the reason why. Mark is trying to paint a different picture than what you get out of Matthew and Luke. And what he's trying to do here is he's describing a scene of conflict. Because what do we have here? There's not very many words given. And we see what? We see Satan and the wild beast versus Jesus and the angels. That's the conflict that's taking place out here. Have you ever wondered, why does he bring up wild beasts? Because you don't see that in any of the other accounts. Well, part of it can answer the purpose of Mark writing, that he was probably writing, more than likely, to Roman Christians. And for Roman Christians, wild beasts, at the time he was writing this letter, were a very real threat. So there was real wild beasts in the wild, untamed Junadian wilderness that were a threat to men. But these Christians at Rome, they really were threatened by beasts. Because listen to what this historian Tacitus wrote of how Nero savagely treated the Christians there. He said this, they were covered with hides of wild beasts and torn to pieces by dogs. That's what Nero was doing to those Christians there. And so they hear this about Jesus is out there with wild beasts, that is going to speak to them because Mark's trying to encourage them that, hey, Christ was driven out. He was thrown out into the wilderness where these wild beasts are. It was a real threat. And yet, while he was there, 
the way this verb is used about the angels ministered, it doesn't just mean at the end. It's saying it happened throughout his 40 days. So he's out there in the midst of these wild beasts being threatened, and he's saying God was with him. He'd send him comfort and aid by these angels ministering unto him. And he's telling them, hey, if you're thrown to the wild beast by Nero, you can know that the same God is going to have his angels there to comfort you and to get you through in the face of martyrdom. God won't abandon you. He didn't abandon the Lord Jesus. That's what he's telling them. And I'll tell you what, I honestly, I think we're going to need the same encouragement in these days ahead. You ever seen the face of some of these people that are just filled with hatred? So you get thrown in a prison, and that's who's coming to see you every day. It's not your smiling mother anymore or your wife or your kids. I mean, it'd be like looking at wild beasts, and that could be a very frightful thing, couldn't it? And to think that couldn't happen, I wouldn't be that naive. So we may not be facing literal beasts, but we might. You never know. And it's good to know that God didn't leave Jesus to be just torn up by him. But I think savage men is a very real possibility. Like I said, what we have here in Mark's wilderness is this conflict between Satan and our Lord. And Alistair Begg said this, Mark is describing the conflict of the ages. That's what he's showing us here. What he will describe, it will be in the rest of the gospel. Jesus' conflict with the powers of darkness. The conflict, he says, underlying all of Jesus' life and death. And you know where this started? This conflict we're seeing out in the wilderness between Satan and the wild beast and Jesus and the angels. Where did this conflict begin? Clear back in Genesis. Genesis 3.15. That's where it started. You know, after God pronounced his judgment on the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And the entire Old Testament is an outworking of that conflict. It is. Two kingdoms in conflict. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. And it carries all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And guess what? Beyond that, down through the centuries, right up to our present day, that same conflict is going through. And you know how we know that? You turn on the news and you see carnage down in Orlando. You turn on the news and you see these people killing 50 people in Istanbul. The Bible explains why this is taking place. It's the conflict. It's Genesis 3.15 going on, right? Because what does it say in John 10? The thief comes, what, to love on God's creation? To steal, kill, and to destroy. And he's out to destroy any chance of man's salvation when he's meeting the Lord out here in the wilderness. He's trying to do it in right here. It's like this, as one man explained it. When Adam was set in the garden, think about it. When he was in the garden, everything was good. He had a good wife. He had good food. All the animals were good. As they like to say at one certain church, it's all good. And it was for them back then. It was all good. But then what happened? Adam fails his test. And everything is ruined. And what happens? The garden is no longer the garden. Everything becomes wilderness, doesn't it? The whole world turns into wilderness. His relationship with his wife is turned upside down. And the world is thrown into chaos, including the animals. They're suffering up to this present day. 
So what do we have? We have Jesus our Lord. What is he called in 1 Corinthians 15? He's called what? He's called the second Adam. And he comes to earth and he faces the same enemy, doesn't he? Satan, called the adversary. That's how he's worded here. The same test. Jesus doesn't get to face this test in the garden. You know where he faces his test? In the wilderness. As the man said, he came to this world not as Adam found it, but as Adam left it. Like a guy said, you clean up your kitchen. You know, mom's got the kitchen cleaned up, and she comes back a few hours later, and she's like, what happened? Looking at all the kids, you know, looking guilty. He said, this isn't how I left it, but this is how I'm finding it. It's a mess. <laughs> you know, Aaron buys his house over there. And how was that, Aaron? Not as the previous owner found it, right? But as he left it. Wouldn't you say it was more or less a virtual wilderness? You got vines growing in the windows, wild beasts living there, and who knows what all else, right? And so what was the task ahead of Aaron in his house? He had to do what? He had to restore and transform that place, didn't you? That's what it's all about, and that's what Jesus' mission is as the second Adam, to come into the wilderness of this world and transform and restore everything that the great adversary, our adversary, Satan, has done what? He's twisted it and distorted everything. And listen, from Genesis to Revelation, that is what the Bible is all about. God bringing back the restoration of the world that the devil has destroyed and bringing it back even better than it would have been, right? The kingdom of God has come. And that's the reason for rejoicing. That's the heart of the gospel. And here's the thing we need to realize. If things in your life are not like you'd like them to be, you know why? Because it's broken. And you need the restoration of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what the anointing on our king is for. To transform broken lives and relationships. Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. The purpose is this, to preach the gospel to the poor. He, God, has sent me, Jesus, to heal the brokenhearted. To preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of jubilee. Everything goes back that you lost. That's the gospel. That's what the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what we're seeing here with what we're reading tonight. That's what it's all about. But listen, for some of you here, you've got a broken relationship that if it doesn't get restored, nothing else will work for you. And you know, that's the first broken relationship that has to be restored, the relationship with God. Some of you here have never known restored fellowship with God. You're out of it up to this minute. And if you don't get that restored, your marriage won't work. No fellowship is going to work. No healing is going to flow. If your life's not right with God, nothing will work. The captives won't be set free. That's got to be first and foremost. The first relationship that has to be restored. But listen, the good news is that's what the power of the Lord Jesus Christ will do. That's what he came for. The ministry of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God, Paul pleaded. He says, I'm standing in behalf of God. Be reconciled to God while you have a chance. Because the second time he comes back, it's not going to be an anointing of a dove on him. 
It will be the anointing of judgment. It'll be too late. But when you get things right with God, listen, then everything else will fall in line. Relationships, physical health, broken hearts, deliverance. That's what it's all about. Amen. So what does Jesus' baptism show us? It is our representative as that second Adam. He identified with us as sinners. He never sinned. Our Lord never sinned, but as a man, he took on our burden of sin himself. And he pledged himself with that baptism to go to the cross on our behalf, on your behalf and my behalf. Man, that is unbelievable, almost, isn't it? Except it's in the Bible. We've got to believe it. <laughs> Just an amazing thing and humble obedience. And listen, that humility that he showed there in John's baptism, the beginning of his public ministry, that's the way he lived all of his life, right, on this earth. Up until the point that that humble obedience led him, it says, to the death of the cross. Utter humiliation. That's our God. And at his baptism, he was also given a coronation as God's authorized, anointed king. And just picture it again. What a sight. The heavens... Think of a blue sky with clouds ripped open and you see a dove descend and come down upon this man being baptized. And then you hear a voice from heaven. That's a rare occurrence in the Bible happening. This is my beloved son. However, it came through. I can't speak Hebrew. In whom I am well pleased. Oh, man, what a sight. But listen, well, another thing we need to think about here, when God declared his eternal love for his only son, the only one of his kind, He's declaring he has the same love for us because we're united to him. Do you know that? Ephesians 1 says this, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by or through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And listen to this, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved his beloved son, we're accepted in him because if you think about it, believe me, in and of ourselves, we are hateful to God. We are hateful in and of ourselves. Whether you think so or not, you might think you're pretty cool and he likes you. No, we, no. In and of yourselves, we're hateful to God. But because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, he says to us what he said to his son. You are my beloved son or daughter. He's made us accepted in the beloved, adopted us into his family. There is only one beloved son in the sense that Jesus Christ is, but we also are beloved sons because of our union with him, right? None of us are eternal, co-equal with God. Only Jesus is that. We don't have divinity, but we do have the Father's love, and we can praise God for what? Where Adam failed and he left this world in chaos, Jesus came into this wilderness of this world and passed the test against our adversary, Satan, right? And as the conquering king, he has done what? He's begun that restoration and transformation process that, listen, we would have never been able to be, even begin it, wouldn't even have cared about it. And he came down there and battled the devil and started that in the wilderness and began that restoration process. That is the hope of the gospel God will bring us back better than Adam through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see the power and authority as we look on of this anointed king as we go through this gospel to his glory. We should see that because what a glorious Lord we serve. Amen. What we're seeing here, let it minister to you in that way and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done on our behalf. 
Because listen, the conflict of the ages, it's going on, but one day it will be gone and done. Because what does it tell us in Romans 16? That we will crush the head of the serpent under our feet. He will do that for us under our feet shortly. That's what God promises. Amen? Amen. That's what he's done. Let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for giving us your word, Lord, this word that was written down, that you inspired to have written, that can show us the way of salvation, that can show us your glory and what you've done for us and will do in the ages to come. And we thank you, Father, for the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ to be baptized, to submit himself to that baptism on our behalf. And that he came to seek and save us that which was lost. And we thank you so much for that, Lord, and for him conquering and passing the test in the wilderness, that he can restore us back and better than how it was in the garden. And we're so thankful that you've done that for us. And I ask that you'll make all of what was said tonight, Lord, what was from you in your word, real to all of our hearts, that we can carry that forward and that we can trust and magnify you in the days to come. And I thank you that you'll do that for us here in Jesus' name. Amen.